Good evening, everyone. Welcome to LSE's newest building. My first time here. Things looks all right. Is it okay? Yeah. Is everybody happy? There's a big screen. We can put YouTube on if you get bored during the question time. But uh, I have a strong suggestion that you might not end up being bored because we're in for a treat tonight. Um, this is part of the LSE event series, Shape the World, that runs now from the... Uh, it's a week-long series of events that takes place from the 22nd to the 7th of March 2020, and clearly we have we have an early version of an early inst in, uh, installment of these. So uh, tonight's guest uh, is here to talk about lots of things, but I want to put the book. There's a book. There'll be a signing afterwards uh, if you're interested in a copy, and we'll organize that once the session is over. Uh, so I'm going to read out a script I've been given. Because I, I, like, you know what happens when people like presidents go off script. It can go terribly wrong. So I'm going to stick to a script here. John is one of the world's pre preeminent interdisciplinary thinkers on technology and design, an engineer, computer scientist, and designer by training. John is currently chief experience officer at Publicis Sapient. He's also the former president of the Rhode Island School of Design and was head of computational design and inclusion at Automatic and a partner of the venture capitalist firm Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. John is also an author. He has written uh, The Laws of Simplicity. I highly recommend a really, really nice book. It was not in the script, but that's my personal opinion. Redesigning Leadership, which I haven't read, and his new book uh, entitled How to Speak Machine, Laws of Design for Computational Age. It draws on his wide range of experiences to provide a coherent framework for today's product designers, business leaders, and policymakers and shows how businesses and individuals can identify opportunities afforded by technology to make world-changing and inclusive products. John's TED Talks on design have proven to be hugely popular, and we are delighted to welcome him speak to us here today. Uh, machines are more powerful in today's society than ever before, but, but despite this, few of us understand how these systems work. Tonight, John will show us how essential it is that we educate ourselves about the laws of our digital age, and he will explain exactly how we can do that. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSEMADA, all in one. I would like to ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not disrupt the event. Uh, the event is being recorded both uh, for video and for audio uh, podcast. So, um, so uh, those who could not make it can still see it. And, um, uh, the format of tonight will be that uh, John will speak for roughly 40 minutes. Uh, he will then engage in a discussion with us afterwards, so please sharpen your questions. Uh, there will be plenty of opportunity. Uh, I've uh, been aware of John's work for as long as I think he's been in business, and his references have kept uh, propping up in really interesting publications, and that draw brought me very early on to read his stuff. Uh, so I'm really excited, John, and... Uh, the stage is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Karsten. Right. Okay. Oh, there. Okay, I see a light. Oh, okay, there we go. My electronic voice is working. I'm a little bit tired, and sitting down feels better, but I think it's better that you can hear me. Sometimes the, sometimes the voice track matches my lips, so uh, it's a little bit easier for your systems to do stuff. So first of all, I have uh, questions here, and thank you for being interactive. Um, I, I used to be in the university system, 
I spent uh, quite a while in it. Uh, my early career was there, but uh, I defected from the ivory tower and escaped from it. And I, I, don't, I don't come to university campuses anymore, so I find this uh, really interesting. I don't remember this too much, but uh, I'm really glad you came. Um, I am I'm not a professor. I used to be. Um, I have all the fancy Jedi things that come with that, um, but I don't re- they don't really matter anymore uh, because uh, I'm really interested in the world right now. And the world is very different than it was 20 years ago. It's radically different than it was 10 years ago, and it's so much more different than it was five years ago. And even like last year, it was quite different. Whereas there was a time where you'd wake up in the morning, it's kind of the same world. There was these things printed in books, and they were scarce, and only those who were wealthy had access to them. And you might aspire to get access to this wonderful thing called knowledge. But as you all know, that's a really different world. You can just look it up. It used to be if you want to hear someone super interesting, super important, you had to wait, get really lucky. But as you know, you just look them up and there they are. And, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a really different world. So that's why just to give you context, uh, someone asked me, do I, do I miss being at MIT? And I say, absolutely not. Um, I wish I left sooner, actually. Um, so that's some context. Is that okay? Um, and another thing was, um, I'm so glad that a lot of you gave me some questions because I found over the years that I thought it was strange how I would always get in front of people and assume I knew what you wanted to hear. That's, that's counter the idea of agile iterative. That's counter the idea of how fast the world moves today based upon data. Um, and so I, I love being able to, to hang out with folks and like hear your questions and sort of like, kind of like skew what I have to talk about. That way, if you have to leave soon, you can just get up and leave and I'm totally okay because it was a transaction. You invested time, you're helping to get return on it. And so I'd like to thank you for giving me the question about AI ML. Um, and what, what is it? I mean, there's all these buzzwords being used. You asked how do you keep the human sensibility intact in the context of all this other stuff. You suggested that this is LSC, so be controversial. Um, I'm not supposed to talk about Brexit. Uh, don't talk about sports, specifically New Zealand. Um, and so I got a different sort of a set of like orders around the, the group here. And I think we can cover as much as we can that way, the time you've invested uh, hopefully gets a return. And by having a, um, a board like this, so like I might come up to you, and we all react differently. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us can have the privilege to be bold on command. Some of us are like, eh, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. So this is another way to hear what's inside that. Why am I? I'm not that awesome. Uh, how do you deal with the subject terminology when speaking machines? Thank you. Node unlock. What is that? Why is design unimportant long term? Where do you see design heading in the next decade? Sometimes AI is regarded as basic income. 
what will be left for human work? Will machines replace teachers? How far away from developing AI general intelligence? Any hybrid creature will appear combining human being and machine in the future? Is being holistic well-rounded? U.S. universities better than being focused? U.K. universities, sorry to tell you this, but U.S. universities are the same. Um, <laughs> any advice for students with no tech background? What is the most important thing for business leaders to learn about AI, ML, and design? Frictionless design of social media platforms makes it so easy and quick for sharing fake news. Uh, where would you situate AI in the criminal justice system? Lots of controversy here. Um, let's see here, scroll, okay. Uh, how could product designers in this fast-paced environment get more involved in the area of tech ethics? What's your approach to designing a solution? How significant was Deep Blue's victory over chess champion G. Caspra? It was. How should governments regulate emerging technologies? What roles does the humanities have in the digital age? Any comments on the viewpoints and future landscape picture in the brief history of tomorrow? Do you see any potential in the field of advertising? How is AI changing the workforce in terms of recruitment and retention? So let's try to cover as much of this as possible. Um, I have um, some proto ideas. I will dig into the ideas in the book that I have completed. It took uh, six years. Um, not because I spent six years on that book. <laughs> I rewrote it five or six times. Because um, the first time I wrote it, it was about design and the technology industry when I was in venture capital. And I thought it made sense, and I thought it was interesting, and then I kept writing, I kept writing the book, rewriting the book. It was never really good. And I actually wanted to give up because I work now. I have a full-time job all the time. So I don't have time thinking about whatever, blah, 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 like I used to. So each time, each step of the way, I was like, I'm not going to do this. But along the way, <clears throat> I found what I thought was useful to me. I do believe in the artist's selfishness. Um, I want to understand something. So all I've left for you in this book is a sense of what I now understand about computation. And maybe it's useful to you. Maybe it's not. I'll be able to go over what it's, what's in it. You don't have to buy the book. It's super easy to understand. Um, so sound good? And then we'll go back and cover everything here. And I think I'll cover the things that were covered sort of in the audience as well, which are embodied here. And I don't know how well I'll do in controversy, but we'll see how it goes, okay? Do you agree to the end user license agreement? Yes. <laughs> okay, good, yes, thank you. Okay, so uh, just for those who are attached to the system now, Who's in charge of the UK? Choice, Boris Johnson, Illuminati, Queen, Donald Tusk, Jeremy Corbyn, or the LSE? Oh, 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 oh wow, Illuminati's winning now. Okay, oh, oh, Boris, oh, Queen, oh, Queen. Oh, this could be, this is the Queen, the music group, by the way. Okay, here we go. Oh, 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 wow, look at that, look at that. Oh, oh, Illuminati winning. This is dark here, LSE. This is controversy, you asked for it. Okay, oh, 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 eliminate Boris. LSE losing, winning, Jeremy Corbyn down, Donald's down, Queen down. Queen and Boris Johnson tied? Okay, eliminate, and then LSE beating out Boris Johnson and the Queen catching up. Oh my gosh, look at this, neck and neck. One more, who is, let's break the second tie, Queen won, yes. Leave it at that, quickly. Oh no, the Boris caught up. Okay, um, what is the most powerful company in the world today? In your minds, LSEers. What's the most powerful company in the world? Amazon. Oh, yeah, okay, lots of Amazon. Google. Hmm. 
Alphabet, Alibaba. Yeah, Alibaba. Beijing, is that a company? Uh, uh, uh. Okay, uh, Google, ha ha ha. BlackRock, good one. Okay, Apple, Facebook. Oh, I don't know if you want to be powerful. Uh, Alphabet, Alibaba, where are the drinks? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, no drinks. Um, okay, so if you notice, the technology companies here are doing, doing quite well. But isn't it weird how like 20 years ago, if you did this, you'd be like, what's that? What is that company? Face and a book? How's that work? You know, and even, even like 15 years ago, would this be the picture? You know, 10 years ago would it have been the picture? So this is really strange. Um, we still wonder where are the drinks, but this is a really strange situation. Let me explain to you why it's not strange. It's not strange because we're living in the age of exponential change, which you see the word all over the place, you hear it in different ways. There are three great ways to understand exponential change. My favorite one is a British one. Not that I'm biased towards the British, but the British have a really old riddle. It goes like this. It's like a kid's riddle, actually. Um, so there's a biologist. She lives next to a pond. And on the pond, there are lily pads. You know, ponds, lily pads, they go together, frogs, etc. So the, the pond, she clears the pond surface of all lily pads. And then, because she has a certain species of lily pad that doubles overnight. So on day one, she puts the lily pad out there. One night passes, and there's two lily pads. A day passes, it's four lily pads. A day passes, it's eight lily pads. Right, so get it? We can add, so good? Okay, so the riddle goes, on day 30, the pond is completely covered with lily pads. On, you know the answer, I can tell. What day has the pond, is the pond half full? Now, if you're a linear thinker, you're gonna say day 15, right? Because it's like halfway through. But the real answer is 29. It's 29 because on the 29th day, the pond was half full and it doubled overnight. Now, what's strange, what I find strange, because I got it wrong when I was asked, actually as an adult. What? Um, the, on, on day 15, the pond was 0.003% covered. What? How's that possible? That's day 15. That's halfway. How is it 0.003% covered? It's because exponential change is very different from linear change. Why is it that these companies are doing so well? They're not fueled linearly. They're fueled exponentially. So it's no surprise that they were running at this rate that was, everyone else is running at a linear rate. They're never gonna catch up to us. Bam, happened. Now, why is it that this happens so quickly and we didn't notice? It's because computation by nature is completely invisible. You can't look at it, you can't point at it, you can't draw a picture of it. You know how we say the cloud? It's in the cloud and you look up. It's not up there. It's like everywhere. 
It's this massive network of computers that are exponentially expanding in power. Now, let me give an example. So, consider how in the late 1800s there was、uh, two Belgian brothers who, in France, achieved the land speed record. They, they they used an electric car, mind you. So you know, Elon Musk, Tesla, you know, last century, surprise. So、uh, electric car went the equivalent of roughly 70 miles per hour, which is、uh, in the United States is slightly over the main speed limit on the highway. So imagine that car getting faster every year at the speed of exponential change. If that progress occurred in roughly 1917. That car would have gone past the speed of light. Can you imagine how we would have noticed that? It's like, oh my gosh, the Belgians going faster than the speed of light. Is that okay? It would be all over the place. That's what's happened. The computer from a few decades ago is tens of billions times faster, yet it's cheaper. Yet we don't say anything about it. It went past the speed of light, and we didn't notice. Because it's invisible, and computation is a thing people talk about all the time. Whether it's AI, machine learning, bits and bytes, computer code, servers, AWS, but what I've discovered is that this is something that people can talk about, but don't have a visceral sense for it. And if you don't have a visceral sense for it, you're excluded from what's occurring. What happens when you're excluded from something? When you know, when someone—I'm sure the LSE isn't a very competitive place—but you know, stuff's happening. Someone's got like a secret formula. They're like killing it, doing so great. Everyone's like, "Yeah, awesome, good for you." No, not good for you. Let's take them down. Right? So the problem here is that the kind of technology fueling. The greatest technology companies, most people don't fully understand. When we don't fully understand something, what do we do? We turn to fear, right? We turn to anger, right? And what Yoda said turns to suffering. So we go all the way down to the dark side, and we want to take it down. That's what's going to occur、uh, every month、uh, into the future. Of asking questions about how do we stop this from happening, but it's absent understanding. And if there's understanding, something different can happen. I believe. I think with understanding, more people who understand how computation works might ask questions, not just about how do you shut it down, but what could we do with it differently than companies out there that we're not sure we admire anymore. Follow me. Follow me. Good. Okay. So,、um, what is computation? So, flip your smartphones again. What is computation in your mind? What do you think it is? And again, you don't have to be right. You probably are more right than me. There are super duper AI people in this group, so you can like outpace me.、Uh, computation is statistics. It's logic. It's math. Process, advanced calculation. Zero and one. Machine thinking, reasoning, automation, problem solving, making sense of info, data-driven insights, manipulation, 
lambda calculus, instructions, applied memory, automata, instructions and registers, networks, subtracting, algorithms, exponential development. So it's all these things, right? It's all these words. And this could keep going. And you'd become to realize that we're only talking about a fraction of what computation really is. Because it's a giant world where all of this becomes true, but you never see it. Um, you never actually come into contact with it physically. You only come into contact with it through the terminal device. The terminal device is talking to you. But as you know, when you use a device like this, you're talking to this device, but it's talking to all the other devices. That's a bit strange, isn't it? Um, what's strange about it is that your sense of scale disappears, and the sense of possibility emerges. And all of these different terms enable, and you want to know where are the drinks, exactly. <laughs> all of these terms, and that's the human part. So the, so the human part's coming in, leaking in. It's good. Um, all of these kinds of terminologies are how computation is constructed. And it's awfully hard to understand. So I spent a lot of time understanding this kind of stuff. Uh, I did my electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. I worked from software down to hardware. I designed microchips. I came back up. I designed parallel computers. So I've done all the whole kind of things. Um, I'm not good at any of them. That's the actual reality of it all. Uh, but I've uh, surfed through all these layers. Um, and I pulled out a few ideas to help sort of abstract this into a simpler uh, frame. Okay? So I can't guarantee by the time we leave our time together, and even, even after talking with Carson, you'll have the formula. But I have a rough way to approximate everything on this board. Okay? Okay, good. All right. So the questions from the audience are always available on that, okay? And I'll be able to switch back to it. I'm a big believer in a messy desktop. So I don't mind if you see my desktop. People are like, oh my gosh, you're showing your desktop. Uh, I have this desktop, everybody. Um, okay. All right. So. Let's go over how to speak machine. We have 20 minutes. That's OK. And you can send the questions there. Got it? You have it. You're multitaskers. You're from the future. OK. Uh, so how to speak machine. Um, how to speak machine links to my discovering how important inclusive design is. Um, for all of you thinking about making businesses, or someone mentioned venture capital, you know, one of the big opportunities for investing in a business creation is building inclusive businesses. Why is that the case? It's super easy. You know this term green field we use in business? The green field, the untouched field, the land of opportunity. It turns out that there are tons of companies that have been funded around value propositions by young, wealthy college students from privileged backgrounds. So you pour money all over that, grow stuff, awesome. But then you keep pouring money on that, less awesome, right? Another ride-sharing app, amazing. Another way to rent my shoes out, incredible. You know, another scooter that I can scoot on one foot instead of two feet, amazing. So that's, you keep doing that, there's a diminishing return. 
But if there's all kind of businesses that have not been funded yet, just because people have been excluded from it, but not considered for that possibility, it's a huge uh, business opportunity there, inclusive design. And as a quick primer, uh, there's four books out there if you haven't heard of inclusive design. There's a book called Technically Wrong by Sarah Walker Bachter. There's a book called Tragic Design by Jonathan Chariot and Cynthia Savard-Sassier. A book on, called Mismatch by Kat Holmes. And a new book's coming out called Building for Everyone. And these four books, these first two books tell you how terrible technologies we make today are. Uh, how toxically masculine they are, how excluding they are, and how they've been constructed. Um, and you sort of become more awake in that process. So I recommend either of these books over here. This book over here by Kat Holmes pr provides a way of thinking how to make products. Uh, it's been taken up by Microsoft. Uh, Satya Nardella's team has sort of taken this as their philosophy. And this book by Annie Jean Baptiste is coming out from the Google team. And the Google team recognizes that great bad things are occurring, and also somehow we have to correct that. And so that book is coming out next, next, uh, next month, uh, next year. And all these books I've been able to contribute to just with like a foreword, but actually the goal I had was to learn from them. So I tell you about these books because I was able to learn from them. As I began to talk about inclusive design, people started coming to me thinking I was an expert, not an expert at all. But in the process, I got to learn from all of them. Now, Kat Holmes talks about three ways to design inclusively. It's super easy. The first thing is to recognize exclusion. Now, what does that mean? Recognizing exclusion is making yourself uncomfortable. Who likes to be uncomfortable? Nobody. Oh, you do. Some people do. Artists tend to love to be uncomfortable. Entrepreneurs love to be uncomfortable. But the average person's like, I've got my chips, I have my drink. Um, I've got my Netflix on. I'm, it's recommended the perfect show that I will like. I'm fine, leave me alone. But people who actually want to say, like, maybe I should be watching something else or hanging out with someone I really don't know, I feel uncomfortable around, learn from them, not a natural thing to do. Uh, recognize your own bias towards exclusion. Um, I've loved working with Kat because I've asked myself, how, how excluding am I? And I always turns out I'm so excluding. So once you do that, learn from human diversity. Lean in and be curious. Like, you think that way? Interesting. You know, like, I think this way. You think that's weird. Huh. And going to your controversy point, that's when it gets really interesting, but you need to have this bilateral interest in wanting to connect. It's super hard. If you have a hard time with this concept, I suggest strongly the greatest piece of YouTube content. Google Sesame Street, Cookie Monster, Westworld. Don't forget this, really important. Cookie Monster, Westworld. Westworld being the HBO TV drama, Cookie Monster being from Sesame Street. Um, and there's a brief two and a half minute video where Cookie Monster teaches us all about respect. What is respect? It's about taking your cookie and breaking it in half and giving the cookie. Give the cookie, right? Give the respect. Sometimes you'll say like, huh, thanks, bye. But Cookie Monster teaches, take the first step. 
So that's how we're able to learn from human diversity. Cookie Monster, Westworld, Google that. Thank you. Number three, solve for one, extend to many. So you might solve for what might be an edge case and discover a whole set of solutions from it. For instance, one company I had the privilege of investing in uh, was Walker & Co., which was founded by Tristan Walker, who had an idea to make a, 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 a beauty care brand for people of color. Because he realized he would walk into a drugstore and he was looking for beauty care products for people like him, African-American, and discovered that maybe the bottom shelf, where it was dusty, had a few older products for him. And he thought, huh, I think I deserve something different. Um, and he realized, looking at photographs uh, from the past, uh, US history photographs, where he noticed that African-American photographs of people, of men, their skin was super smooth, Whereas he realized he used a three-blade system that would leave uh, irritations on his skin. He looked it up and realized because a single-blade shaver is more likely to not leave that irritation, he made an entire brand, uh, Walker & Co. Bevel, around this idea that a single-blade shaver could be a better experience. And it was an Apple-like product. Um, but what's most important is he discovered that this situation arises if you have coarse, curly hair, which a lot of people who are not African-American have. And so you open up a bigger market for something that people thought was only for a certain category and grew it and became a successful business. So these kind of cases are so important, and they only happen if you begin to invest in different value propositions. So recognize exclusion. Look at how you treat other people and who you include. Learn from human diversity. Uh, let's give cookies. Let's try it out. Let's make friends. See what happens. Uh, lastly, solve for one, extend to many. A simple example of learn from human diversity, or my own cookie story, um, I spent, uh, I, I had the opportunity to work in uh, Detroit in largely African-American neighborhoods with small businesses. And it was so eye-opening because I'd never visited these neighborhoods. Uh, and also working in that space, building websites for different coffee shops was a fantastic experience, thanks to a man named Hodge Flemings. During that era, there was this, we have this president in the United States, Donald Trump, have you heard of him? Um, we have a president named Donald Trump, and there was all this media of like, oh my gosh, you know, there's all these people, and they're, they're, they're sort of angry, so I wanted to go and see them. So, uh, because the problem with being excluding is uh, there were so many people who said to me, there's this great book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, a New York Times bestseller. Have you read it? People were like, oh, yeah, I loved it. It was incredible. But he asked people, have you ever visited there? No, I never visited there. So I said, I want to go see. So I went to uh, West Virginia and Kentucky, coal mining country. And within a half hour, I was like, whoa, I didn't understand this part of the world. This is how you see things. This is what's happened to you under Obama. And as a super Obama supporter, I was like, oh, I could see why you would feel that way. So anyways, the, uh, the ability to move into these worlds is extremely valuable. So I highly recommend it. And you can design differently in the process. OK. So Kat Holmes describes inclusion as essentially the opposite of exclusion. And what is inclusion? And what is exclusion is about boxing yourself out. 
right? It's like, ah, oh, barrier, nothing shall go in. And if you read that, it looks bad, but actually it's really good, right? Because when you exclude, you focus, right? Steve Jobs said, focus. Or you prioritize, right? Get things done, focus, exclude, prioritize. Isolate the problem. Don't get so focused on so many things. And so, you know, excluding thing is a, is a problem-solving method. Um, that said, it limits your market size. So, because we're at the LSE, you all have good acronyms. Um, you know, when you think about the phrase, uh, the TEM, the total addressable market, if you actually isolate, you actually lower your total addressable market. And if the market is small, not a good place to back to investor thing, not a good place to invest. So by being inclusive, you expand your TAM. So uh, if you think of your pitches around this space, how do you expand your TAM is a good argument for more inclusive design thinking. Okay. So far, so good? Inclusion? How does this have to do with computation? Let's go there. So when we think about the backdrop of why the technology industry is asking questions about how to be more inclusive, it goes deep. It goes deep into the fact, I think, that even the knowledge of how computation works is in the hands of a small minority of people. And if that knowledge opens up, we may see things change differently. So, computation. What is it? Uh, for computation, um, I think of David Bowie uh, having uh, correctly identified computation because, as we know, he was from a different planet. Um, and this is in 1999. He was interviewed by the BBC's Jeremy Paxman about the internet. And I clipped this and added a subtitle track this morning, so I hope I get this right. No, you see, I don't, I don't, I don't, you... agree, I don't agree. I think the internet... I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool. <laughs> oh, lost the audio, sorry. He said, it's an you have the British accent, it's an alien life form. Um, so, isn't that neat? How like he named it in 1999, an alien life form. So think of computation as an alien life form. Now, if it's an alien life form, it embodies different laws, different rules. And so, as I said, the book is very easy. Um, there's three sections in the beginning and three sections in the end. The first three sections explain the three Bowie-like properties of computation. The second three chapters talk about how it's impacted products and services today. Okay? Yeah? Good. All right, so first of all, the first property of computation that is bizarre and alien is that computers can run loops forever. They just never get tired. You know when you run a program and you tell it to do something? It's never going to stop. Now pause for a second. That's strange. I'll get tired of talking with you. You get tired of listening with me. We both have to go back to our real, real lives. But the computer can call on and on and on. Have you ever been like mad at a company and call up the phone tree and like, I'm gonna show them, 
I'm going to be on this phone line for six hours and have them like <laughs> suffer, right? Bad idea, because computers never get tired. For those of you who want to build an affinity for infinity, um, I suggest strongly you make your own Mebius strip. You know this? You know this? So that's like a, uh, on the left, here's a, here's a loop of paper, and on the right, a loop of paper with just one twist, tape the end, get a pair of scissors, and what happens is in this case, you cut it down the middle, it becomes two loops, but in this case, you cut down the middle, it stays one loop. I know LSE, right? <laughs> is that possible? Gotta do it. If you, who has, who's never done this before? Raise your hand. Oh, you're gonna love it. Okay, all right. Um, same with a computer. You tell it to print my name, go back to 10, it's just gonna go on and on. It's like that Mebius loop. It just keeps getting infinity. Like, how is that possible? It never gets tired. You know, it feels good, good for the ego, but it just keeps on going. The computer is not thinking, it's just doing. We talked about AI. The computer is not thinking, it's just doing. In the context of AI and machine learning, the computer just takes a gigantic pile of data, gobbles it up, and then it uses that, someone says statistics, to generate a pattern and use its future behavior based upon all that gobbled up data. What is the problem? It can never do something that is, it is not in the data. What is the problem? If it eats up data with bias, like court sentencing cases that tend to bias poorer people from poorer neighborhoods to be sentenced, then the AI is going to automate sentencing of people who are in bad zip codes because it's using it's taking data. Problem? Yes. Okay. So machines run loops, they never get tired. Uh, I, another analogy I use, it's just like a Matryoshka doll where you keep pulling one out and it never stops, right? Wouldn't that be weird? That'd be a great product, but it's weird, right? <laughs> we know it's strange, but again, on the computer, it's completely normal to keep pulling rabbits out of hats forever, interminably. Strange. Okay, so Bowie, right? First property, strange, huh? Okay. Second property is that computation can span infinite space and time, and also it can track to infinitesimal details at the same time. It can consider 10 to the plus whatever and 10 to the minus whatever simultaneously. That's a bit strange, but it's actually not that strange for artists. Artists totally get this, I believe. Um, I believe that artists keep their foreground and the background in the same plane. They don't make a distinction so easily. It's why they're so interesting sensing people. Um, I know when I ran an art university, I used to hang out uh, in the evenings, walking around campus, and just hang out with students to see what they're up to. I know it sounds a little creepy, but I believe in um, getting data. It's all about data. Like, how's this going? Oh, yeah, so anyway, so I used to hang out at the, um, what's called Nature Lab, which is like a natural history museum on campus, a small uh, natural history museum with uh, insects and rocks and all kinds of interesting samples of everything. And so I, um, I showed up one evening and, um, you know, I try to seem knowledgeable sometimes. And so like I have, to, I have an opinion. So I was like, well, you know, how are the butterflies doing tonight? You know, and uh, the student attendant kind of like disses me with eyes, like, yeah, right, butterflies, check them out. You know, the gourds, 
the gourds are in. I was like, okay, totally. Remember, gourds are good. Butterflies, embarrassing. I know, gourds, they're just like a thing, like this, so boring looking. But that's where the action's at. Um, but butterflies, I said, butterflies, right? Butterflies, right? Trying to, like, dad myself in. Uh, and I said, uh, yeah, well, you know, butterflies are cool because of their feathers. And I thought, feathers? What are you talking about? And I got wondering, like, what happens, at, you know, whatever. So, um, and then she brought me over to the microscope. And we had just, we were working on STEM to STEAM, moving art into STEM education, so we got all these microscopes. And so she shows me the, the, the butterfly wing, and it's covered with feathers, uh, little microscopic feathers. Um, so anyways, to me that was an example of like, for her, it was like totally foreground, background together, like, just like computation. Because computation behaves in the same way. Computation can allow you to traverse uh, higher dimensional spaces, n-dimensional spaces, uh, which to most of us are like, that's impossible, but actually everyone can go n-dimensional, n being a large number. You just have to work really hard. So consider how if I draw a point, and this is from the Bauhaus era, mind you, uh, draw a point, and if I extend that point, I get one dimension. Check, right? Bless you. And then, if I extend a line in space, I get two dimensions, the plane. I got two, I got one, two. I extend that plane, I get three dimensions. Looks like a cube. How do I get four dimensions? I extend the cube in space. We have the tesseract, not the Avengers tesseract, the real tesseract. The three-dimensional cube extended four dimension. How do you make five dimensions? You just keep doing that. How do you make six? You do it again. You're going to get tired eventually. But the computer computation can span this n-dimensional space fluidly in higher dimensions. And by doing that, it can look at a gigantic pile of data, map it to large dimensional spaces, come to conclusions, and be able to move forward without being paralyzed like us. Like, you'd get tired of doing this. I, I already got tired. These are all hand-drawn, by the way, so I got really tired. So, uh, another example, fractals. We know fractals, right? So, like, and again, I say like, like, <laughs> if I didn't write this book, I wouldn't have actually thought about these things carefully. So I'm so excited to share with you my basic essential knowledge. Um, so like, I, I knew fractals, but I never thought about them very much. Fractals are really strange. Because I think about like, if I drew a line segment and I replace it with this pattern, if I just take that pattern, and replace it on each place, I get a, a pattern like this, right? You can say I've replaced it, I've replaced it, I've replaced it, and I'll do that to this segment over here, and I keep sub-replacing it, right? And I can keep doing that, right, if I never got tired, um, like a computer. Um, and so it gets more and more detailed over time, and if I apply that to a star like this, this is called the Koch snowflake. Um, it becomes like triangle to that, to that, and to that, and it can keep on going. Now, here's the coolest thing about this. I love this. So, if you keep on like expanding the perimeter of this with these little things, you get infinite perimeter, right? The perimeters just get longer every time. But it's mathematically proven that the area is finite. Eerie, huh? Feeling it? A little alien. It's actually weird, isn't it? It's a finite area, but infinite perimeter? Anyways, but we ask. So, machine-run loops, 
Machines can spend infinite space and infinitesimal detail at the same time. It's a normal thing in every day for the computer. Lastly, machines can be living. Computation is the one medium where you can actually define conversations. It can talk back to you. It can run away from you. It can do things that other humans do, other animals do. It's not natural to do that. You can't make that out of wood or metal. But we're doing this all the time. And it's not an old idea. In 1966, uh, Joseph Weizenbaum, uh, MIT professor, uh, created the first chatbot, 1966. It was called Eliza. It was modeled after a Rogerian psychologist. Uh, the idea was uh, that method of therapy would repeat back some things you say. It would just pull phrases out and repeat back to you. So, hello, I'm Eliza. I'll be your therapist today. So I typed this in this morning. I'm feeling tired today. Eliza says, did you come to me because you're feeling tired today? I'm like, yeah, I, I did. How'd you know? Because I said it. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, yes. And so it has keywords. It responds to random keywords. Yes, I see. Let's explore that a bit more. Fairly generic. Could have been a response to anything, but like, yes, you, you want to hear me? Ah, okay, good. My leg hurts, you know? Tell me more. <laughs> Feeling really good, right? Ah, oh, gosh, you really get me. Um, it hurts all the time. What does that suggest to you? <laughs> you know, like, oh my gosh, I'll tell you. Um, are you really a doctor? Um, why are you interested in whether or not I'm really a doctor? So you can stay there forever. And uh, Joseph Weizenbaum created Eliza. Uh, he, was, he had it running on his terminal. And the story goes, he left it running overnight. And his graduate student came in and began typing at the terminal and thought it was Dr. Weizenbaum. And when Dr. Weizenbaum came in the morning, he said, oh, I was just talking to you all night long in the terminal. And that wasn't me. Now, most people in technology might go off and start a company. But uh, Dr. Weizenbaum, uh, as uh, a youth, fled Nazi Germany and was able to escape and, in his family. And he understood what could happen if absolute power were to control such a kind of technology. This is before the internet, before everything people could imagine. He could project in the future if this kind of technology were available and actually much more intelligent, what would it do to people? So he actually stopped this research, and the rest of his life was, life was spent on asking questions about, is this okay? He was considered like a radical person for his time. But I find that more people in technology are finding his work. It's an interesting thing. So, uh, So another example, someone also wrote on what is computation, automata. Automata is a kind of primitive form of computer program. Automata works in this following way. Uh, if I have a row of square, a row of bits, ones and zeros, I can determine through very simple, simple rules what the next row is, the next row is, the next row is. It's like a textile machine. It prints out different patterns based upon the previous row of uh, pattern. Um, this is automata. And this is using something called Rule 30 developed by Stephen Wolfram. Rule 30 is quite uh, beautiful. I mean, this is me drawing the squares. I got tired. Um, so I wrote a program to calculate them out. Um, and it becomes this kind of like triangular pattern. You see the pattern? pattern? Um, so what's interesting is that that pattern, if I stick it on a shell, there's actually a real uh, mollusk out there uh, called the conus textile. 
Um, and the contest textile looks like this. So it's another kind of like eerie moment of like, wait a second, I thought that was a computer program. Wait, that's actually a, a, an organism. How does that work? And so my point of these three properties is to get you kind of like curious, like I am, like, wow, what is this world of looping forever? What is this world of infinite and also infinitesimal? Think about it for a second. Uh, the classical example of it's impossible is it's like finding a needle in a haystack. That's impossible. But a computer can scan large space with, with high detail. Finding a needle in a haystack, no problem. I can loop forever. I can find a needle in every haystack on Earth, no problem. What we think is impossible is wholly possible. And lastly, living. It can model living systems. It has some relationship to life in some form, and that is weird. So, if we accept the fact that computation is uh, transforming, this is a chart by Ray Kurzweil that I redrew, where computers, the computers have surpassed by the year 2000 the complexity of an insect brain. By the year 2015, he projected that it would, it would surpass a rodent's brain, which actually happened. Uh, by 2023, the belief is that co co computation will be more complex than the human brain. Uh, and by 2045, there will be more computation that is, uh, that is uh, the equivalent of all the people on Earth. So this is sort of like Terminator, Dark Fate kind of style. Um, but it is interesting. If you think about the lily pad pond, this is likely to occur. So, but what does it mean? Does it mean that your jobs will get replaced? Does it mean fear? Does it mean anger? Does it mean uh, government regulation, etc.? I'm not sure what it means, but if you understand it, you get curious and ask, huh, what does that do? Well, it changes products in three ways. I remember I talked about Loop Large Living. That was a super easy book, right? It's like super short. Um, and over here, it's about the fact that for the first time, if you're using computation to make products, you'd never have to finish them. Now, if you think of classical business science, I make a product, I make it right. If I get it wrong, I'll have too much inventory. If I get it wrong, people will return it. You know, bad, bad, bad. So let's get it right before we ship it. Computation, because it's an alien life form, I can just chuck it over to you in an incomplete form. I can send you a crumb of the cake, and I can grow the cake around you uh, because it's an alien life form. But because most of design, most of business, biases towards get it right, don't make a mistake. That's why technology startups are so successful, because they don't have that bias. They're like, let's just try it out. Let's see what we find. And number two, you can instrument them. You can, you can send that crumb out, and I can know if you ate that crumb or not. Oh, you didn't like the chocolate crumb. You like the raisin crumb. Let's do raisins. And so for, for marginal cost zero, you can instrument the, uh, the, the product. That's a weird thing. It's also a creepy thing. I'm going to pause for a second. People say, I wish we just were, had privacy again, right? But when you do that, you kill the alien life form's ability to adapt to improve around you. There's a trade-off there. Okay? Ooh, time's up. Um, and lastly, if you're doing this at the scale of millions of people, trying stuff out, learning at the same time, 
you can make a lot of mistakes, as you can see by the big tech companies today. So a lot of my thinking in the future is how will companies evolve to not make mistakes like the big tech companies who are trying to correct themselves. If other companies are trying to understand computation, understand its capabilities, its limitations, its flaws, can, it, can, can the companies today invent themselves a future that's actually further ahead of big tech today? I'm hopeful of that. And ever since I joined Publicis Sapient, where that's the mission, all my friends in big tech are actually happy because they tell me we need more competition out there to change how we behave. So that's what it's about. So that is How to Speak Machine in a Nutshell. And I'm going to hang out with Karsten and see what we find. Thank you. Very good. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, back in 1989, three months before the Berlin Wall came down, I had a glass of wine with Weizenbaum at a conference in East Berlin, of all places. And so I read his book, um, and I was extremely inspired by it. And when I now reread it, uh, it's clear in one sense he was way ahead of his time, but it's also interesting that one of the key premises he has in the book is if you automate a mess, you just get automated mess. It's like what we call garbage in is garbage out. Now, Google, they have made a, a lifestyle out of organizing mess without really organizing it. So, so you could also say, like, what, what is our hope for your book being relevant just in a couple of years from now? Because with this exponential growth, the, the, all our preconceptions might be shifted a little bit because when uh, Joseph Weizenbaum talked about the problems of just, of just automating mess without sorting it out first, we, it was because his frame of mind did not allow all that to happen automatically. So what do you think are your, the, the main critical issues you have to have with your own arguments in the book for how long would that last? How do we need to be critical to these ways of conceptualizing what computation is? Oh, well... Um, it's lovely that you met Dr. Weisenbaum. He was uh, my um, uh, recitation teacher, actually, too. And I had no idea how important he was. When you're young, you're so vain. <laughs> but uh, that's wonderful. Oh, I want to pause on that. So nice. Um, first of all, um, I, I, I don't have time to write anymore. Um, so I, I just ended up with a book. So I don't claim that it's going to be valuable two years from now or maybe even next year. Um, I wish it was, uh, but it's a letter to myself, really. And it's it kind of uh, reflecting on what I know right now and my desire, if useful to someone else, to share that, knowing that, absolutely to your point, 10 years from now, it could change. Uh, but if there's one thing that I'm trying to kind of lace in there is the experience I think clearly you had knowing that the Berlin Wall did exist. Mm. And because we're part of the generation that knew that war happened. And I can't tell you how um, I met like a, a, a director at one of the big tech companies like 30 years ago who said this thing to me that was always stuck with me, how if you consider most of the directors of the major scientific labs all over the world came from the Manhattan Project era. Mm. It explains a lot, because uh, if you know the Manhattan Project story, it was the scientists who had access to all the money they could ever need, which to a scientist is kind of awesome. I hate to say it. 
Uh, and so this amazing money, amazing minds, let's go build it. We go build it and people die. Then you kind of, as a scientist, you ask a question, I thought I was just making something. I didn't know it would impact people. So when I heard that, it made me think about how many people who passed the torch on to us came from that era where the conscience part was born in war, and we're missing it, and that's what concerns me the most. So in the book, I I touch upon this topic of like, wow, what is it that we've lost, and how are actually younger people trying to gain it back? Good. So, so I'm I'm going to open up for questions. So uh, we have a couple of people with microphones. Where are you? There we go. One there. One in the back. So while while they get ready and warm up the microphones, uh, all I want to uh, say that I would highly recommend this book uh, to just about anyone. It's a really nice and elegant description of this alien life form that is computing and I think it's uh, personally it's one I've tried to I've spent about 30 years being paid to try and understand it and I'm nowhere near ready yet to really understand it and I think it's a it's a terribly complex task to try and explain this alien life form uh, to people who exactly may not be used to this this kind this kind of of uh, abstraction so I would I would highly recommend it um, oh, but that means a lot to me yeah you. it's very good it's very good um, so we need to have some questions. We have one up here front. Thank you for that. It was absolutely fascinating, exactly what I wanted from this talk. So, wonderful. Yes. But, but. But. <laughs> Controversy. You, know, you, you said 2023 computational power surpasses all humans. You haven't mentioned quantum computing. Could you put that into your book and how that fits? That is a perfect example to what Karsten is saying, that I did not cover quantum computing. I didn't cover actually a lot of things. Um, uh, I think if you're a computer science person and you read this book, you may get angry at me. Um, But I described a lot of ideas in it. Um, Quantum computing, for those of you who are new to it, is basically like a, a science fiction movie come real where every way we thought of how computers are built uh, will change because the quantum effects are leveraged in how computation works. Let me describe a simple way to understand that, the way my simpler mind can understand it, which I love. Um, Who is the person there? Do you know Contact? Contact, the movie with Jodie Foster. Um, She plays a scientist, and there's actually a real scientist who she models a character after. It'll come. But um, I've sat with her one time to understand uh, quantum, because I didn't understand it. It was too hard. Um, and the way she described it to me, uh, remember I was saying about 10 to the plus and 10 to the minus? Um, she has this wonderful diagram of how, um, you know, I can see you, and I can see you, and I can see And so at, at 10 to the some point, something point, 10 to whatever, 20 something, um, I can't sense you anymore. There is no ability to sense you anymore. There's no way to sense you. So <coughs> at 10 to the high number, the astrophysicists, the theoretical physicists, have to invent a new way to understand past the gravitational field's um, impact. But then, if you go to 10 to the minus, you know, 10 to the small, 10 to the skin cell, whatever, at some point, uh, 10 to the minus 20-something, 
the gravity starts to fail. So, you know, in the atom, once you go inside the atom, suddenly all the physics, like drop an apple or whatever, no longer works. So it enters basically kind of like this world I'm describing, the alien life force world. It enters a whole different world where you have to think differently. So quantum computing requires not a linear approach to taking what is described in the book and understanding it. It's an entire leap, thus quantum leap. And I wish I could talk, I, could, I wish I could write about it, but it's too hard for me to understand. Okay. Thanks. And for the record, it won't do all the things people say it will for the next many years. We have a, one over here. <laughs> no, you never know. <laughs> yeah. Hi, John. Hi. Hey, hello. Martin. Yes, hello. Martin Thank gave you. me mangoes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so decades ago, uh, you used Japanese students to simulate computation, mm-hmm. uh, if you remember. Um, I do. So today... <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> so today, um, given the way that you uh, describe computation, do you think that humans can simulate it again? Or do you think that it's well beyond that already? Oh, so for context, in 19, early 1990s, I built a computer out of people. Um, I wanted to simulate a computer and how it operates. So I know, it seems immoral nowadays. But um, it, was, it was friends, it was all friends, it was okay. Um, and uh, I created a, a, a computer uh, out of people. There was like a disk drive person, and there was a graphics controller person, and there was a bus carrying stuff around. And um, uh, it was really fun because what I learned is that once you assume the role of the parts of the computer, you can get invent- inventive very quickly. Uh, these were, uh, it was education school students were helping me. Um, and uh, the two of the grad students said, hey, this bus thing, we carry data. What if we had two buses? <laughs> Which is describing how the PlayStation works, essentially. Yeah, sure. And so it was interesting how, when you understand it, you can actually you know, get further. But to your question, I think computation is so complex today that that wouldn't work. Um, but uh, that was a fun era, the 90s. Well, well so, so to follow up on that... Um, so your, your ba- basic uh, premise of the book is exactly that in order for us to understand the role of computing in, in our society and at work or at everyday life, we need to open and look inside it. We need to look at these soft machines and see what they do. So the question is then, to what, to what extent do we need that? So how, how much for, to the general public? Yeah. Well, there's a very controversial issue, um, namely, should, should children learn to program at school, or how early should they learn how to program? So what, what would you say to this? How much do we really all need to know yeah. how it works? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, teaching people how to code will not change the world, because, I hate to say it, coding is quite boring. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you have to sort of get over the barrier. And at, and at some point, it gets interesting. Um, boy, it's laborious. Um, I still write programs. I still like uh, can push mobile code out. I can do that still. Um, I actually worked in a cloud company, so I would get current, so I can do JavaScript, React, etc. Boy, it's so laborious now. But um, I want to point out that um, in, in the United States, the computer science exams have changed philosophy because they noticed that the gender balance of people who would take the advanced placement computer science class skewed heavily towards young men and much fewer young women. So the switch 
was as simple as making the exam about, not about write code to do this. It was, there's this world problem today. Now, how would you write a program to solve that aspect? That changed the, 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 the balance in gender radically. So I would say, um, what kind of problems can we solve today, should we solve today? And is code a part of that? That would actually be a, a way that I would advocate for. Excellent. Thank you. Just the same, we just need a microphone if you want to be on tape. I would be interested if you can, uh, let's say, have some moral concept of data and computation, the relationship between the data, because we are moving now from simple data to big data to more big data. Yeah. So the computation, how are you related, perfect. which kind of framework, how you develop this new strategy? Thank you. Perfect, perfect. Actually, that question came over there too, so that's so useful. Um, so I guess my feeling about big data and statistics in general is it's never been more exciting because I remember when I was an engineering student, uh, calculus was good, statistics is bad. Because calculus is how you solve like rocket problems and brake problems in cars. Awesome. Mechanical era. Statistics, bad, because you can only flip a coin so many times and get tired. <laughs> so there was no data. But we live in an era now where there's access to so much data that statistics gets really good. Okay. And so big data, I think, is a natural outcome, uh, a passion of business students worldwide. Uh, data science degrees are super, you know, that's like being like a superstar right now. Um, that said, though, um, I, I write in the book how I'm a fan of thick data, a, a term coined by Trisha Wang. And, um, it came because I, I really love data science. You know, I love opening like a Jupyter notebook and writing the Python code. Like, oh my gosh, I did it. You know, it feels so awesome. You know, whoa, it's only 22.2% versus 12.8% solved it. Um, and it feels so good. But uh, I mentioned this inclusion exclusion thing. When you talk to real people, it's, it gets quite different really quickly because the data masks so much stuff. Um, my favorite example is the LA Times ran this story about how um, in parts of uh, Los Angeles and underprivileged parts, um, there was this uh, noted, there was a study done about how a lot of people in these areas are obese because they eat bad food. They eat fast food, they don't eat the they eat junk food, and therefore leads to obesity. So there was a program run to deploy uh, or get vegetables everywhere, so people could have access to vegetables. So the program ran, and they ran the big data numbers, and sure enough, it proved that even if you offer high-quality food to underprivileged neighborhoods, they're not going to take it. They're still going to get more obese. So that's a sign of lack of intelligence. But when, when there were studies done to actually talk with people, and talk to people in the neighborhood, you reveal things that are relevant to me because I grew up in a poor family. My parents had no education. And I grew up as the second fattest kid in class because my parents always fed me junk food. Because why? I wanted it. Um, and in reality, in these neighborhoods, they discovered that in a single parent uh, life, you just don't have any time to take care of your children. And so if you have any modicum of time, you want to be a hero. 
So you'll take them to something that they want to eat because they see other kids getting it. You'll give them soda. You, you want to be a hero. And I think that big data excluded that whole line of thinking. So I think that big data and thick data together, quantitative and qualitative data, is the formula for success. And that's how to keep the, I keep going back to your question, how to keep the humanity in place. Very good. We have one all the way in the back and then you up here. Hi there. Um, as we've seen, com computational power is just getting seemingly infinitely more powerful on like a day by day or week by week basis. Do we have to start rethinking how we as humans interact with those computers at like a terminal level or beyond that? Well, it depends who you are. Like if you know about the terminal, that's something. Um, but <laughs> I think that there's an opportunity for more people who are further away from the computer to get interested and curious and get involved and provide ways to improve it in their own view of how it could improve. Why do I say this? It's because I, I, I don't know how it is here in, in Europe, but I see how in the United States there's so many... Um, is this part of Europe anymore? So I, um, <laughs> in, in non-America part of the world, um, I see so many technology companies being kind of skewered by politicians because these technology companies are doing evil things. And I know the politicians have no idea how computation works. They've been giving handed notes for what to say. And I think that's actually quite dangerous because it misses the fact that if you topple like a Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg isn't the problem. The computation exists. It's not going to go away or get erased. It's still, it's still going to be there. So I think the, the lack of knowledge around it is going to create moats of misunderstanding. And if you haven't seen this thing called social media, it really makes it easy for everyone to get on the same page, right? I'm just joking. Um, and so my hope is that by understanding it, non-technical people leaning into it, working with technical people, to suggest better ways to use it um, might be a way to change things. Yes, we have one there. I, I recently read uh, Ruined by Design by Mike Montero, and he put, put forward the argument that, um, that other industries that can wield this much power are often regulated because of the damage that they can do. Mm. His perspective is design as a field is something that he feels perhaps regulation could be discussed. The question to you is, could it be and should it be? Wow, that's a great question. You know, the, um, the, this, I, I called it a book, but it's a, it's a letter to myself at this time. Um, I believe that if you just regulate it and try to destroy it, it's kind of an ignorance that you can do that. Have you all seen Netflix, Stranger Things, Netflix, Stranger Things? There's the upside-down world. The upside-down world ain't going away. So if that's the case, uh, some of us should understand it, not with um, kind of like, a, what do you call it, boldness or ignorance. It's like, huh, well, it does that. What good can it do? A simple example of that is I love how uh, a certain small group of people notice that Wikipedia has... Bias, surprise. 
uh, Wikipedia uh, entries for scientists skewed towards male scientists. And so an AI was written to add new entries of women scientists, added 10,000 entries. And so I like this idea of using computation to change things. Um, I like the idea of the fact that if the data determines the future, how much more better data can we create so the machine will ingest it and change its behavior? Um, I like that approach, but it requires knowing about it versus trying to shut it down. So that's my take. Yeah, wrap up here. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask, how do you think classic design, design thinking, <clears throat> and computational design come together to solve complex problems? Ah, good. Um, so, uh, first of all, uh, roughly a year ago, I was in the popular press for uh, saying that design doesn't matter. I'm not sure if you know this, but on design Twitter, I was, um, I was hated for like a month at least. Um, and, uh, We've all forgotten now, so oh, it's okay. <laughs> you can find it again. It's the internet. But... Um, um, uh, someone asked me how did that feel, and first of all, I was really interested in it because that's the third time or fourth time I've been try- I- I've experienced that, and I believe in user research. So I was like, "Oh, what do you think I'm saying? Oh, you think that? Oh, I guess you could construe that, or like you thought I'd do that? Whoa, interesting." So I was able to get a big scan of everything that everyone thought that I stand for and do. And I'm not, my job isn't to defend myself, it's to learn. Um, but my favorite thing I learned is that journalism and clickbait headlines really works. <laughs> um, I remember when, uh, when Catherine, it's a dear friend, uh, she like sent me, the, the, sent me the, head, the headline. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be bad. What it, what it says is, John Midas says, design doesn't matter, period. I didn't actually say that. I said, design doesn't matter because of dot, 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 dot. But boy, that title was awesome. Um, two days later, uh, I was notified that, oh my gosh, that story was really highly, it was a high-performing story. Oh, really? Um, uh, don't, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll do another story. So another story goes out that has different comments by people. And the title reads, uh, readers of John Midas say, and there's this horrible thing about design. If you read it really fast, it says, I said that. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. What a great way to make a headline. It's so delicious looking, right? So um, I realized that um, what you say can be changed so easily, um, but if you're too careful, you won't say anything. Um, but So I talk about design a lot. Uh, it's not mattering that much compared to, number one, teamwork. I think teamwork is really important. I don't think that design matters if it's purely about classical design, unless you're wealthy. I'm gonna pause for a second. Like, if you're a classical designer making awesome chairs, no one can buy those awesome chairs, but they're fantastic. So you're actually aiming at a tiny market that's super privileged. Um, That's not my interest. But classical design, is beautiful. I adore it. I love it. Right? And then there's design thinking. Most classical designers hate design thinkers. You know who I'm talking about? They have post-it notes and felt markers and whiteboards and they're designing. Classical designers say, oh, you're not designing at all. But the classical designers who say that, I say, well, the design thinkers make six-figure salaries. So look out. 
right? Because the design thinkers work at organizational problems of how to team better. So a classical designer and design thinker together are quite powerful because they bring this ability to create taste and engagement and create organizational change. The computational designer, though, is the one who can do this kind of thinking, and that's powerful in an exponential way. So when you combine the three together, it's a delicious formula uh, because you can actually address all those kinds of designs emerging. But you cannot forget the fact that capital drives everything. So that's why I always inject the point that if there isn't a business value created from it, which also can align with a social outcome, then you're just designing. It's not that important. So I, I'm just, I just wanted to stick with your, uh, your answer to the question on regulation, because you could, so you could argue that we have a certain way of understanding how we compete against each other in sort of regulated markets, and, uh, and it's sort of based on the physical world of linearity, and that if you have a big factory, you might have economies of scale, but there's a limit to how big the factory can be, although the 60,000 people in a Ford factory back in the 1920s is now, of course, replaced by 300,000 people who make, uh, who make Foxconn, uh, Foxconn workers who make mobile phones and Sengen. So, of course, we have scaling, but the point is there, these companies, the digital platforms, they have, uh, they, they really grasp the exponential scaling. And if you look at how much Microsoft have tried to, to become the third wheel in this relationship between, uh, between us and our mobile phones, so Apple and Google have carved up the market because Microsoft had had to give up because they've spent billions of dollars for years to try and entice developers. So the point is there. So it's not whether we should break it up or whether we should ruin it or stop Zuckerberg, but the point is there. We need to have a new way of dealing with exponential business growth. Absolutely. And one of the ways could be to say, well, if you have this treasure trove of data, maybe we need to force you a little bit so, to, for you to share. So how, how do you think we should deal? Your book mentions uh, this notion that the technology tends to to make to centralize and make some people uh, benefit more than others. So, how do you think that these large companies should be should be understood in terms of, of, of value production and competition? Well, I you know when you describe it that way, you give me hope for maybe the LSE should govern that. Well, we've studied this for the last twelve years, but uh, <laughs> but we don't write these books; we <laughs> write academic papers. No, but, but seriously, I mean, I think that. If you, if you leave it to purely governmental policy makers, their distance from the understanding is so yes. great yes. that the potential for a mistake and actually not doing it, making an impact is so high. Yes. So I think that some entity has to engage as that kind of middle person ground because tech companies are aware they have to transform and governments want something to happen. Uh, is there a win-win relationship to broker? Um, that would be good. Yeah. Good. Very good answer. Um, we have time for maybe two questions, maybe one more question, or if you want to take a stab at your board. Any advice for students with no tech background? That's a good thing, because you aren't poisoned by how <laughs> things work. <laughs> Yet, I recommend that you be curious about computation and see what it means and what it can do, and then bring your judgment systems to it, it could be a good thing. Uh, is being holistic, well-rounded versus focused? Um, the university system is generally flawed because uh, there are departments 
there are divisions. Um, I think every industry, companies have the same problem. You are a blank, you're not a Y, you can't be both together. So I think that this is a common thing called specialization, which is considered good. But for younger people today, you will probably not be able to specialize anymore because those specialties keep going away. Um, I'm delighted to meet someone like Carson, who's a clearly a polymath, who covers a grant, like a large territory, and academia is able to afford those kinds of people to exist. The general world, although, makes it very hard. So one piece of advice I have for you is the following, which is given to me by uh, Igarashi Takenobu. He was a famous designer who used to design for MoMA, etc. Um, he was my mentor. And um, he said that when I met him in my 20s, uh, I, had, I was doing semiconductor devices, I was doing software, I was doing industrial design. I was like a hot mess, basically. And so I visited him and I said, hey, you know, this is what I do. And he was super, like, energetic. And he said, you know, this is great. You're doing a lot of things. This is really good. I said, I know, but everyone keeps telling me to specialize, like do that one thing and do it right. And he says, no, 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 don't worry about that. He said that when you're making a life, you're building a pile of things. And he said, he used his hands like this. He said, he said there's like a Western way of thinking and an Eastern way of thinking. And he said, in the Western way of thinking, you sort of like specialize, specialize, specialize. And you're building this mountain, this, this hill. And it gets like really kind of sharp like this. It goes up on the mountain, like, woo, high. And he said... In the Eastern way, you do a lot of things, you try a lot of things, and so you never really get up there. You're like a little hill, like this. Um, and he said, because in Japan, the symbol of beauty is Mount Fuji, which is a super symmetrical thing. He said, the neat thing about going broad is that eventually your skill base is super solid. You cover a lot of ground. You become like Mount Fuji. And he said, this other way, you do get higher and higher up, but if one thing is wrong, it'll all fall over. So I look at this idea of multiskillism as an important thing. You know, Reid Hoffman wrote a book about this, how it used to be you would like, you would be a younger person and say, I want to be that. And you would take the subjects to get there. And by the time you took the subjects, the job went away. So that's the world that we live in today. And the way to sort of assure that you are robust is to build that solid base of mountain yeah? You get the last question if you wait for the microphone. Whoa, that's a good deal. Yes, that's the deal we have. It's just a quick one. Um, is it possible to go back to the page where you recommended those books? Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Best question of the evening. Fantastic. <laughs> I think the answer is yes, but we'll see if the computer okay, works. Go ahead. What's the question? Go ahead. You want to know what the books are? Yeah. Uh, take a picture of it. Go. I don't know whether that literally was the question, but if it was, they're here. I think he wanted the picture of the books. There you go. Excellent. That was easy. Well, uh, I just want us all to uh, thank John for being here to spend his time with us. And wait, I haven't said yes. Uh, so uh, right after, um, if you just hang tight and then uh, John and I will leave because he'll sit outside and then he will sign books 
I don't think he'll give them away. I think you have to buy them. That's how these things work. But, uh, but you'll be able to get a signed copy of the book. And I really now want us all to thank John for spending his evening here with us. Thank you ever so much.